run into the ground. We're back. Another week. Another great guest. Star of stage and computer screen. Guitarist <laughs> and camp trash. Keegan Bradford on the pod. What's up, Keegan? Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. You're a scourge uh, of the internet. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, true or false or which answer is worse, true or false, but I am on the internet. You, you're very much on the internet. Uh, fun, I, I mean, admittedly, I don't know too much about you, uh, except for the fact that, one, you're an insanely great follow on Twitter, well, and two, you. you maybe talk about music more than anyone I've ever encountered in my entire fucking life. So, your breadth of knowledge uh, on music is, is unparalleled, as far as I know. It is just like, you know like anything, like a hobby that I really love. I really love music. I love learning about music. I love understanding like where it comes from and why it's good or not good. And um, in the olden days, I would have been and was like a forum kid, mm. like a person who was arguing oh, yeah. with 45 year olds online about whether or not the who are any good in like a, you know, a guitar forum somewhere. Uh, but most of the internet has died. And so I'm on Twitter and I'm using that to kind of air out my, my thoughts pretty constantly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and also, uh, former guest uh, Jay from Listen Up Nerds. You guys go back and forth in a really, really fun way too. So because he's another homie. one who's like, you know, a total, total just music savant. It's crazy. Yeah, Jay uh, actually made the first Camp Trash shirt. Oh shit! Um, okay. I'm sure it says Camp Trash is a real band, and I'm in it. Jay made that, and then uh, <laughs> Jay and I have been buds for a long time, just through the internet. So I really shout out Listen Up Nerds. That that just reminded me. Wasn't there some funny kind of interaction with a comedian? Uh, yeah, refresh me was... on that. What was that deal? I remember seeing that oh, coming around man. Twitter. I gotta look up his name. He's like a, a very nice guy. He's like a, a dad comedian, you know? He's like okay. an older guy, and his yeah, jokes yeah. are kind of like more in that lane. He's he's uh, like an actual comedian, not not super like a name you would know, but he's definitely mm -hmm. like out there doing it. And he was doing some crowd work, and he... Um, let's see here. Were you Jim, wearing the <laughs> Jim Colleton and he okay. did some crowd work and somebody in the crowd was wearing the camp trash shirt and he uh, uh, called them out about it and asked them to describe the band. And, uh, <laughs> and the kid was like at the, you know, because describing our band, you know, if you try and talk about in a public forum, try and talk about emo music or something, you start to feel kind of stupid. You could hear the kid kind of losing steam. And he's like, you, you, you know, you probably haven't heard of them. And the guy was like, I absolutely have not. <laughs> Does not sound like something I would like to listen to, but we sent him a shirt and he sent put a posted a picture wearing it. So. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that that's so much fun. It's uh, I mean it it's just funny enough. Uh, you can go on record uh to the the Keith the Keith Latin episode we had, and I said that Camp Trash record's fucking fucking great. So, well, thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> that, and I, I love Keith. Hell yeah, everyone loves Keith. What's uh, what's Texas like? Andrew said he had some stories that we didn't want to save for the pod, but I'm uh, visiting Texas because my wife has some some business here and has some stuff to do. So I just came out to check out the area, and um, it's as flat as I remember Texas being, and it just is remarkable how much Texas feels like kind of its own country. It feels like that Texas really just wanted to build highways and then everything else just kind of came after. It feels like the highways are the point here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's I I've actually never been through Texas other than 
was it the George Bush International Airport. So my uh, my Texas experience. Big shout out, huge shout out, friend of the pod, George Bush, George uh, W. Patreon subscriber, George Bush. Uh, (laughs) Andrew, well, so Andrew, you said you had some some specific Texas stories. I've been I've been to Lubbock. It's a it's a. I think like the people who love it love it. I think the people who great joke. People who choose to live there, um, I can see what what they would would love about it. Uh, it's not for me. I, it's not the center of culture that I would ever want. Um, it's a college I, town. It's very it's very like college centric. It's like it's about the college, right? <clears throat> and I I lived in Tucson. Very similar vibe, sort of. Very similar, actually. Tucson's you know, bigger. I so. say either you love it or you leave it. You know. That's what I and say. that's all on that. That's that on that. <laughs> how how long are you down there for? Uh, just a couple days. Um, probably going to be heading out tomorrow at some point. Maybe go visit some friends in Austin. But everything in Texas is like a five six hour drive, so you really got to yeah. commit to it. That's what I was going to ask. Is is what is like the closest major major city? No, I mean nothing. Like uh, D- Dallas is five hours that way. El Paso is five hours that way. So it's, it's just easier to get to Colorado from Lubbock than anything else. That's brutal. The uh yeah so where are you where are you based out of generally when you're not I live in, in Portland Oregon I'm oh, I've shit, been there okay. about like seven eight seven years now um my you know I was born in Buffalo and then uh, went to high school in Florida my family moved there and that's where I met um, the members of the band who aren't my brother and <laughs> so the band is still kind of loosely based out of Florida that's where all our gear and shit is lives okay. in Brian's storage unit and then. Um, I moved out here about seven years ago and uh, arrived to Portland and really love it. Having a hard time imagining somewhere else I would like to live as much. That That's something we found recently, uh, especially like when we were talking to Andy from Pool Kids. It's just like the amount of bands now that are not limited by geography anymore. Mm-hmm. And like, how, how does that work for you? Because I know with Pool Kids, they're mostly kind of centralized in Chicago at this point. So, you know, for practice and stuff that people are doing, we just fly out and get a practice space for a couple weeks before tour, brush up, and same deal with, like, writing a record. Just like, oh, we we all pick a spot to meet, and then we just write. Yep, increasingly, it's kind of like that for us. Um, We, uh, like, I just, in November, flew home for a weekend. We we have a practice space. We, like, it lets us pay by the hour up in uh, north of St. Pete, Florida. And an old uh, Bay Area metalhead guy who's been around forever runs this just like practice spaces for people. Um, And we pay him in cash and we come and we just uh, put in as many hours as we can over the time I have and write together that way. And then otherwise, when we have like a tour or recording to do, we just try and all get in town a couple days in advance and start working on it. But a lot of what we do has to be remote in terms of pre-production and prep and writing. Are you doing like band practice zooms? There's just no technology like, lets yeah, you do say, anything. Would that seems like I, I've seen so many of those uh, pandemic Zoom shows and stuff, and that just seems like a logistical nightmare. It's just there's nothing that can let you like see each other and play something and hear it at the same time, yeah. and so it just doesn't work that way. So we do like Brian and I write 
most of it. I mean, they're his songs generally, but we work really closely together on everything. And so typically he'll send me a demo of just an idea he has. I bounce a couple things off of him. He does another version of the demo or he'll call me and we'll kind of, he'll play it over the phone and we'll talk through different ideas. And then I will put it in, uh, you know, the DAW. I'll record like a drum loop version of it or something and kind of flesh out what shape instrumentally I think it could be and how it could be arranged differently or how it'll work as a full band song. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of just sending that back and forth is the way we've done it for a long time now. Nice. And so Portland, what what quadrant of Portland are you in? So I'm in Northwest Portland, which is a generally not a great area of Portland to be in. Okay. But I'm in a little neighborhood called Knob Hill, it's um or the alphabet district it's between several other areas of town where there's been a lot of development and condos coming in and things but our little area is kind of um there's a it's anchored by like a hospital on one end okay. and then long running businesses on the other so in between there's not really enough to tear down and build up again and uh so we live in the little old brick building and an apartment there and have since we moved there and it just our area is what we want out of a city, which is we walk to everything. We walk to yeah. our coffee shops, our grocery stores, our bars, all of our doctor appointments, our dentist, everything is walkable from where we are. Yeah, the gym, nice. like, and so we just aren't moving until we can find a place that has like accessibility like that. Cause it just is for right now, until I have, you know, money to buy a house and space like I want it, I just really like the accessibility of being in the middle of stuff and being able to just hop out the door and do whatever I want in the neighborhood and not have to commit to travel. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's the dream. It's, uh, yeah, Portland, Portland is such an interesting place. Uh, I like to say keep Portland weird. You know, but uh, that's, I, that actually would be great. People a, would love a, that there if they heard that. Okay, <laughs> I have a really good idea for a run into the ground shirt. Yeah, yeah. What was that? No, I keep Portland weird. Come oh, on, man. okay. <laughs> Sorry, you've just been like staring off into was, space. <laughs> I had to open a window in here. It was getting a little smoky. Sorry. Uh, God. Uh, yeah. It's it's a. Uh, do you have any? Uh, do you run the? Are Oogles still a problem out in Portland these days? I don't think so because I don't recognize off the top what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like the northwestern uh, name for like crust punks. Yeah, that that definitely sort of exists still in Portland, but I end up encountering it more like online, seeing a music released and going, "Oh, that band is still here." Like I don't go to those shows very often because they're just kind of in a different area of town they do they do their own thing yeah um there still is like an older punk contingent in portland um but i think they're just kind of less at the center of the music scene so it's still happening but it's just definitely not it's moved to the fringes a little bit and isn't quite um the the center of music in the city right now yeah what is the center of the music in the city right now yeah that's a great answer question um there's a a couple things that are happening that are great um one is that um, musician and producer Mo Troper is really involved in uh, making other people's records right now and in being a part of those shows. And so um, a lot of people that uh, Mo produces and works with end up playing shows uh, together. And there's just a really incredible crop of bands uh, like Bori, uh 
Brendan Ramirez who plays guitar and Mo's band has a band called Bori, which just they uh, they just released an incredible record. Uh and so there's like uh and then there's Alien Boy, who's also uh Sonia, the singer of Alien Boy, often plays drums in the live Motroper band. And so there's a lot of uh overlap with people about our age, like around 30, who are still playing music together and writing and recording together. And then the other, and this isn't like the most, like, this isn't encompassing of everything sure. musically happening in Portland, but my experience this is isn't like, your definitive list, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to assume like I am, you know, I'm an old guy. I'm, you know, I learn about a lot of music online before I ever see it out in the world. And so I'm not like the on the ground reporter for everything. But the other thing happening that's really cool is that the young kids in Portland have really built up again, a community of bands playing together and playing shows together. Um, Mauve is a great young emo band. Uh, they're on pause because the kids all went to college for the first time. <laughs> Rhododendron is a great chaotic um, hardcore band. There's screamo bands, there's floral patterns. There's um, just a lot of young and local bands uh, all doing things together. There was a pretty thriving basement show scene for a while, and now it's largely moved to a handful of DIY venues. Okay. Um, I think there's a like a, a like an old Planet Fitness or something in Northwest that bands have started having shows at. Um, so yeah, I love what the, I. It's love... like the reverse Spirit Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was gonna say it's, it's like the reverse Denny's. As soon as anything <laughs> hollows out, the kids find a way to get in there. And that's what I really love, what I love about Portland. Um, it was like this when I first moved there, is when there is like an intergenerational scene, when there are, you know, older guys at the basement shows and young kids coming to the old head shows. And there's people playing shows together and recording together and kind of just like sharing knowledge and sharing ideas. And um, I feel like that's one of the things that makes Portland so fun and interesting to me is like how many ideas there are and what and how many things are happening all the time there. Yeah, I definitely think that's it's it's such an important thing in like the creative world at large is to have that collaborative effort because it it really does that is the make or break for for any any scene whether it's an art scene or a music scene or anything like that cuz it just like when everyone is ready to lift each other up and and everyone's ready to help everybody else out is just make sure that like things keep running and and when i don't know i feel like that's that was always of like a cycle that happened in my scene in new jersey growing up was just like there would be this like total almost like overrun with shows and venues and stuff and then everything would happen to kind of end at the same time and there'd be this like crazy drought and I feel like, you know, trying to keep... I mean, I guess it happens when you have someone who's, like, really adamant mm -hmm. and, and uh, yeah. you know, great about booking shows, cycles, and then they move away, right. and now all of a sudden yeah, there's that void. Or they go to college, you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like, we yeah. had Joe Polito, so... Yeah. Um, yeah that's Who then weird. went I, on to college and then came very, back and booked all the shows all over again. It's also a very insular scene, because the closest city, you know, the closest thing is, what, uh, Seattle, and that's six hours that's forever away right well bands yeah. play eugene and stuff right yeah or, or, yeah like, yeah. like oh, really uh the band growing patterns is a great young band they're really phenomenal um uh that they put out a great ep last year and 
young Carl, their guitar player, one of those, one of the writers is a really, is a genius. Is just a really uh, huge fan of music and understanding music. And I like that kid a lot. And, um, there, they were based out of Eugene for a while. A lot of kids go to college out there. And so mm-hmm. there was a really cool house show scene there where people would play out in the yard and in front of these houses and kids would sit on the roof and stuff. And is that the Pacific Northwest, uh, SUNY purchase? You know, is it, is it the yeah, Oberlin sure. College? I think of, yeah. it totally could be a little push, a couple more bands. It absolutely could be, but there's there's enough actually, ha- like back and forth between Eugene and Portland. Um, I don't know what's happening out there now. A lot of the people that I knew that were out there have you know moved toward Portland, but I'm sure it's still happening. There's just always a, a you know a new crop of bands rotating in and out. Yeah, that's uh, I, I I like it out there. I haven't been out there in a long time. And uh, I'm I'm sure you owe it to yourself. You I should go owe myself to ca- take a little. You should go visit Portland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me crash on your couch. Uh, yeah, no, I love that. Uh, that whole area though is is cool. It's it does have a specific vibe. Um, the weather when I was there was unbelievably humid uh, in October. I think it was, <laughs> and it was still pretty brutal. But it's just beautiful out there. I take a little trip out to Cannon Beach. I experienced like some mm-hmm. of the most traumatic weather of my life. Uh, that only existed on the beach for some reason. Uh, everything was fine until you like walked down to the beach, and then there was just straight fifty-five mile per hour winds that were yeah, just blowing like sand that. in your face, and it. I couldn't stop laughing because it was almost like I was like experiencing trauma <laughs> because of the weather was so fucking crazy. But it was damn beautiful, that's for sure. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, uh, you've you've done a lot of music writing, which I guess makes sense because you you're so versed in it, but. Um, I think one of the one of the more recent things you did was uh, the twenty year retrospective on Reconstruction Site, whether weaker mm-hmm. then, right? And you did that for Stereo Gum, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, what was what was you, we we've talked about that record on the pod here? Uh, Mariel Loveland from Candy Hearts came on, and that was her mm-hmm. record to, to pick. But yeah, what was your experience with that? What what made you be the one to write about it? I um. just love that record i i think that i i push a lot of the times to be the um the person that writes these things i'm not like you know uh, a frequent music writer i do what i can uh when i have the time to around my work and everything but it's something i enjoy and i think that i just uh try and keep a sense of what of my favorite albums are coming you know anniversaries are coming and i reached out for that one uh to be the one that wrote that because I really felt like I have spent so much time with that record and it's meant so much to me in different ways over the years that I wanted to um, be able to kind of condense my thoughts and and, rep- and represent what that record means to a lot of people um, or try and give voice to to what it means to a lot of people. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm always grateful they let me do it. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Have you been writing for any other publications lately? Um, I occasionally write for Paste, uh, and then I have a piece I'm working on for Spin right now that'll be out later. Hell yeah. um, but I'm doing, a, you know, what I can, when I can, wherever will let me occasionally throw something up there. I really enjoy it. Is there anything going on in, like, current events with music writing or anything? <laughs> nope. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's actually no news at all. <laughs> what a loaded question. Uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Do you think do you think Pitchfork's gonna shut down entirely and kind of fade away or No, come on. I, I hope not. I just think there's such a presence that um 
that does something that nobody else does, which is maintain a really high, I mean, not nobody, but there's there's very few places like this left and there's almost no places that do daily reviews. And they maintain a really high quality of like editorial standards. Their editors are great. They continually have gotten a better uh, editorial staff who's better at shepherding writers and helping them uh, develop their writing. And um, I don't know, uh, I'm not personally acquainted with all of the editors or all the people that wrote for Pitchfork, but from my anecdotal experience, I do know that people um, have really liked this this recent run of working with these editors who have really tried to help them uh, get their writing out in a way that feels like it's of a high quality, of a high standard, and really says something about the music. And I don't. I, I think they're still trying to operate the site right now. I don't know in, in what capacity it mm-hmm. will be. Um, but I do know that they, uh, hope to keep putting reviews out and I hope that something gets figured out because I just, uh, I think that we, we lose bits of the internet every day and I can't stand it happening again. Yeah. What, um, what, I don't, I don't read like pitchfork is usually the extent of my music reading on the internet for the most part, besides like, you know, the stuff that Jay writes, but um who is like primed to step into that that spot if uh if pitchfork starts to fade i don't know i it's, people have talked a lot about blogs and smaller publications and i think that that's definitely the way forward is to just find the writers you like and follow yeah. their writing um but i also understand it's that's not a huge platform for uh for bands for small bands that really used that pitchfork reviews and stuff to to reach a wider audience and um it's just not the same result for bands. Uh, so I think that all a lot of the best music writing I read is people's journal uh, newsletters and substacks and things like that. Um, and I think places like um, Pace keeps on putting out music writing. The Alternative is a crowdfunded music writing site that really helps shepherd young writers and and bring new people in and 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 emphasize new music and young artists and people that aren't being covered elsewhere uh and blogs like rosie overdrive i think do a great job of covering a lot of cool stuff but in terms of like what can replace pitchfork i just there's nothing there's nothing with with the that's as it it proved to be a profitable viable business Mm -hmm. and it made music criticism something that people can make a living doing uh which shouldn't be a ridiculous concept but at this point it feels pretty ridiculous and it, and i don't think that i can think of anything off the top of my head that has the possibility of filling those shoes exactly so either pitchfork will get saved somehow and remain or it will be uh, a very different future for music writing yeah it the pitchfork really did carve such a specific i mean they carved their own niche is the thing and they became their own cliche and developed their own you know it they became kind of the joke and then became part of their own joke um i mean i remember following in the in the tumblr days there was a guy who was running pitchfork reviews reviews yeah i remember that and, too and he would like review pitchfork reviews <laughs> and it was like like i said it became this kind of cottage industry that wait wait wait, not- wait, 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 wait. um he would just read the review and it was like a a, a critique of the writing or he would I, listen I'm, to the material. I'm trying to remember because it, it's been. I mean, this was stuff that was happening in like the. I think I'm okay with both. I just want to know. Yeah, which I think one it was mostly kind of uh, a cultural criticism. Mm. Uh, 
Pitchfork review reviews. I think the guy went on to like write a book later too. It was an era um, where I think that Pitchfork also was at the, at the time was very much invested in being like a tastemaker, uh-huh. and that resulted in 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 a tone kind of of um, pretentiousness or snootiness, and a lot of people reacted to that. And I think that there's been you know like any publication, it's gone through phases where mm-hmm. it was where it was different and where it had like a real um, uh, reputation that it deserved. But I think that. Uh, that was also an era where everybody was uh looking to have their way to have a commentary on it and i mm-hmm. i don't remember much of it but i do remember thinking some of them were funny yeah like the the last like one of the it's still on tumblr but like one of the uh the last posts he's talking about hanging out with a 17 year old young lean outside of the v file store in new york <laughs> So it's a very cultural criticism thing. He's, he's kind of critiquing supreme culture and and things like that. I can't access the archive though to find out when these things were posted. But uh mm. it's oh, here we go. The last the last post was June 28th to th- uh 2016. Wow. So it kind of is his recent scrabbling history on there too. I don't have his recent scrabbling history unfortunately. But you know oh, that's that's, that's around the time of Pitchfork kind of getting bought up and then changing to the more poptimist uh things we, we've discussed uh, previously but it it like i said with pitchfork it was it was a thing that people love to hate it's a thing that people love to champion and it, it truly was a, a a thing a piece of culture that people had opinions on and that was that yeah. was a like, cool like that's a thing that people like don't like i have no opinion on consequence of sound like Right, Brooklyn Vegan. It's a place I get information occasionally. Like I have no, there's no diehard in either direction. It was like truly kind of a catalyst between conversation. And then also, like we've talked about this on the pod a bunch, uh, is some of the kind of deep dive things Pitchfork would do when they would do those videos, like the um, Andrew. What was the one with uh, those long form video? series they would do the pitch for classic albums is that what you're talking yeah. about yeah 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 and those are fantastic sources of information and uh you know i feel well i mean that stuff i feel like they haven't done too much long-form content in general in a while outside of those like uh what, what was the those like high low videos they would do with artists but even that's kind of over under is that over under about? yeah 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 and even that, I feel like, has not really. If I will watch much. one of those, I get that song stuck in my head for <laughs> a week. <laughs> yeah, just that little guitar interlude too between yeah. all the questions. But yeah, like it was like cool stuff like that. I don't know. It was just, it's just, it's tough to think of it not being around. It is a place I go to look at music and check what they scored it, and you know, I always loved reading reading like Ian Cohen's reviews a lot, and like. Like you said, you find your favorite you writers. I yeah, like Ian I Cohen. Th- I think that uh, you're right. It's it's a it's a piece of cultural criticism of music writing that provoked a response in people, and mm-hmm. that's really rare. It's a really valuable thing to have. It's yeah. something that actually causes a response in people, causes them to have their own feelings about it, their own thoughts about it, and uh, that's just you know, kind of an irreplaceable type of thing. I w- I was also reminded of the Halsey tweet uh, from 2020 that makes me very it's so fucking funny um he's fucking sick of you dog the uh halsey has said can the basement that they run pitchfork out of just collapse already and then someone else posted losing my mind thinking about the person on halsey's team that had to tell her she just called for the collapse of one world trade 
<laughs> just an incredible day. Great day on the it internet. It was such a good on good day on Twitter. So good. But yeah, it's it's just I don't know. I'm curious where things go. Uh, we we briefly mentioned it on the Chris Black episode of just not everything needs to make a be a billion dollar industry. Like mm-hmm. it's it's such a shame that so much stuff just gets bought up by these you know big umbrella corporations. It, I mean, it's very similar to the major label buyouts that like Dan Ossie's book talks about. You know, it's they see something that's popular. And then bring it into this entire other world that has a different set of expectations. And then doesn't understand why it's not meeting those expectations. Yeah, it's, like it's, this, it's, it's a niche thing for a niche audience. And that's not always an infinite growth, growth model. Yeah, our, our, our economy is built on the concept that of that business should be an infinite growth forever business. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It's just on, on, on its face, it can't work. And every bu- and every business can't be the biggest business and uh, subsume all their businesses. And eventually you have to go, like, do we want to be the most neutral, one foot in everything entity mm-hmm. in the world that just is, owns a piece of everything? Or do we want to produce something of quality? And I think that it, I don't know, things are bad enough right now that I have no idea what, what will actually win out. Yeah. And then that's kind of the thing that is nice about, I mean, what Pitchfork was. Pitchfork, like, almost defined its own era, like, genre of music. You know, there were just, like, Pitchfork bands. And, yep. you know, when you start having to kind of bring in a broader audience, you lose that kind of niche appeal. It's tough. But, I mean, it is nice that Stereo Gum and, and Consequence and all those other... Uh, you know, all those other sites are kind of, I mean, they're doing good work, uh, yeah, especially everybody's still doing it. Shout out to everybody writing oh, that, and, and trying to, you know, make that's, some that's, noise for things they care about. That's kind of the thing is, is yeah. Where do writers go? Where do, you know, everyone can open up their own blog, but you know, that's not a salary, you know, when, when you make everyone then become freelance by default, like where, where does that go? When you when you don't have time to do the thing you want to do full time, zine resurgence, man. It's I, I the know, only but, option. Well, that's the thing. It, you're gonna get the pe- the people who are gonna hang on are the people who like are compelled to write about music or you know create anything. But you're gonna lose a large market or like just a large swath of like talented people who need to go elsewhere just to make ends meet. Stuff. Yeah, you'll see the disappearance of just a large segment of people that would have been here otherwise. Well, someone else had a really good kind of argument for. I mean, it was it's very you know it's a depressing argument to have, but the idea of just like everyone in media recently, like there was huge layoffs across everything. Like LA Times laid off a ton of like 120 staff members and things like that. When there's less and less media outlets out there. And everyone is like whittling down their team. All of a sudden, now there's like 500 writers all looking for work at the same time. Like, where do you go? Right. It's crazy. I don't know. Uh, I, these are questions we don't have the answers for. But... Man, I've never talked about Pitchfork for that long. Um, Keegan, can we talk about Camp Trash? Yeah. Um, the first LP came out last year, correct? Two years ago? Oh, I don't know. I think it's was it 2022? So um 
2022. Look at that. So a year and a half ago. Oof. Time flies. It's a great summer record. It's a great record. Thank you. I appreciate that. Dan, do you like it? I've been I've been on the record saying I liked it. Hmm. It's very <laughs> we, kind we of established y'all. that earlier. <laughs> yeah. I like it. It reminds me of my favorite parts of uh Fountains of Wayne updated. Ah. That's you know phenomenal I mean? because that is so much of what we actually want to do. I think yeah, that yeah. a lot of what we write, especially on that record, was sort of taking a lot of songs we've had for a long time and kind of bringing them to the band and being like, how can we make this something that we like to play now? Um, and there's so many songs we were really fond of that we'd been kind of tinkering with for, for a couple of years. And uh, so a lot of that is kind of baked in this like emo and pop punk, which is what, you know, a lot of what Brian and I learned to play music mm-hmm. doing. Um, but what we really, really like is that kind of like, pop forward songwriting uh i think fountains of wayne is just one of the best american rock bands of all time yeah. i think that 100%. they're peerless songwriters i don't think anybody under like it it's i think people know right now alex like, chilton uh yeah you know what i mean like it's it's a wild um there's a really beautiful line of like american rock music um you know it, it splinters all over the place but it's it's wild to see sort of the edges of where that goes pop sensibility with like a heavy you know aesthetic and yeah i think that like loud guitars and pop music is what we want to do and i think that it comes across maybe like pop punk or maybe like emo and and those are all things that we like and we listen to or have you know um but what we what we really spend most of our days with is stuff like fountains of wayne archers of loaf um uh, guided by voices and and you know the classic guitar bands that everybody likes but it really has become to us like we've been so fascinated by pop music and power pop and mm-hmm. and just what and these loud guitar bands that are really focused on writing something you can sing along to and that's like the hardest thing on earth to do well and um that's why something like founds Wayne is just so insane because those albums are so full of songs that are just um that feel so effortless but are such it's, it's it's impossible to write things that are that effortlessly connecting with people and that you the first time you hear it, it hooks into you um and so that's like the the goal above all goals is to really hit this um the mark of being a band like fountains of wind of someone who's really trying to just write something that people like to sing along to right yeah absolutely. yeah i've i um sort of like guitar rock um a lot of people will listen to a genre like that and think like yeah it's a pretty simple thing you know what i mean there's like six chords maybe um and i think like it really comes down to like who do i like listen to do it the best like whose version of it do i like the best um i think joyce manor does a fantastic version um Mm -hmm. who do you think God, I don't even super know. Super drag, all the super bands. All yeah, super yeah, bands. super drag, super <laughs> grass, chunk. super chunk. Yeah, I think that um, it just it it's something that never exhausts itself. There's infinite ways to take two guitars and bass and drums and someone who can sing or maybe can sort of sing, and 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 find a song in it. There's just there's 
it, it is endlessly, it's, it, it's inexhaustible. And that's what's so fun about it to me is that you can just keep going back to that well and finding a new way to do it or finding a new sound or finding just a one little thing that nobody's done before mm-hmm. um, or just a melody that really connects. And that is like hard to do because I think that you are using the same pieces that everybody's been using forever. Oh, yeah. and it's hard to make something that feels like it stands out, but you're pulling it, pulling it out of the air and like hoping your take connects with other people. Mm-hmm. I like that. Dan, do you feel that that's uh, accurate? I do. I think it's a universal experience. I concur. So, as so wait, what did you do before Camp Trash? Was there a band before Camp Trash? Um, me and most of the members of Camp Trash were in a band in college um, called Friendship America, but it was just to play. With, there were so many people great playing music. Fucking, that's a great name. I know. I wish we would have just. I can't believe we have so Camp good. Trash instead now. Camp Trash is great, but Friendship America, that's great. That sounds like and a good name now. You can like put that towards like the name of the next LP. You know, It's actually the name of our LLC like that we file oh. all the band stuff under. That's awesome, um, sick. Brian and I went to see a movie when we were in college or high school, maybe. And it was like the middle of the day and we, were, we had a beer and then we're just driving home and sun's out. And we're like, I wish instead of having a job, we could just be buddies professionally. <laughs> just do this forever. Yeah. And forever. So Friendship America LLC became kind of like the, the joke for a long time. And so that's what we called the band. Um, but really, it was just to play with our friends. Um, Andy, yeah. uh, the band Worst Party Ever started in our you know town uh brian campbell who plays in a band called null now in philadelphia which is a really incredible project uh had a chiptune emo project way before people were doing chiptune oh emo, my god emo um called shady nasty which is mostly wiped from the internet but you can find the one album called curtis still which is a joy uh Wait, Cameron, purposefully wiped from the internet or just hard like to say. It's a little the bit, sands you know, of time it's a it's a little bit of everything uh Cameron from the band Farseek was playing in multiple bands in Florida and booking shows at the time. So we just wanted to be part of it. So we made a band and would just every time I came home from college, we'd practice one time, we'd write one new song and we'd play the worst set you've ever seen in someone's garage or living room or something. Um and that is it's just been the most fun thing I've ever done. And Camp Trash started basically because I was telling Brian, I just want to record some of these songs like the the right way so that we don't lose them. You know, it's, it, we've done this for our whole lives together. And um, I would love to have a record of the things we did and the things we like doing. Uh, and so it just start, we just recorded it because I didn't want to lose it because I didn't want it to disappear. And then uh, we liked it. We liked the process. And so we sent it out to Count Lucky Stars and they were kind enough to put it out. So that's awesome. He. Love Keith. By the time this comes out, Keith will either be very happy or in crushing defeat. I can't even talk about it. The emotional (laughs) ups and downs are way beyond me. I know. This has been a a particularly rough one, if I can be honest. Um, I'm unshockingly the Eagles uh, melted down at the very end. But I, I thought this was the Bills year. Yeah, and again... Not something we're here to talk about. Not something I need to go on record about. It's it's a great team. It's the most fun I've had watching the Bills in a long time. And Mm -hmm. I really am not. uh, I I was born the year of the first of the four failed Super Bowls. Mm -hmm. And so it's been my entire life. This has been our team. And I got to be honest with you. 
there's a Bills bar in my neighborhood. And every year there's at least one Buffalo Bills playoff game with a hundred motherfuckers crammed into this bar in Portland, all wearing Bills gears and a Jim Dam Kelly jersey on the wall. And it uh it's the most fun I've had watching the Bills in a long time. And mm-hmm. I like the Bills as a losing team. I like the Bills all the time. Fucking mm-hmm. love the Bills. Um, but to be this good, I'm not really the guy who's gonna be heartbroken if we can't squeeze a Super Bowl out of Josh Allen. I think that this is just like one of the most fun teams we've had in a long time. And and uh I will enjoy it as long as it lasts. That is not an answer that you would ever get from a Philadelphia fan. <laughs> I'm so it's such a refreshing point of view. Um you have not to... my point of view about my particularly football my particular football team, but hey, but the People... Ravens are going nuts and being in Baltimore is that's gotta be fun. It's great. It's great. Has been wonderful. Great. I'm I'm so glad that, that Stavros is uh finally being completely um embraced by the city of of baltimore <laughs> yeah he's real. gonna be doing the arena shows here soon i mean that's it's fascinating just, it's crazy to take baltimore by storm it's yeah i've never seen anything like it um <laughs> there's a there's a stavros um portrait on a salt box like a road salt box near my work I just really? can't believe this is where we're at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so insane. I'll send you a picture. It's insane. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I feel like no one's been talking about football the way they have this year. I don't know why. I feel like it's just been permeating the culture more so than ever. Um, in a very funny way, but it's it's. <laughs> funny how Dan? I don't know. It's just, well, the fact that Stavros is Baltimore's mascot now is okay. is an but insane is thing. As someone who's been on the internet for a long time. Uh, <laughs> and then the fact that also, like, you know, the whole fucking Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey stuff is like in- invigorated a whole new type of fan. It's just, I mean, sports have always been at the forefront of like American culture, but I feel like it's, it's somehow gotten even further. Like those, those lines are drawn even further out now. It's pretty cool. When crazy. I was a kid, uh, it was not cool to be into music and sports. Oh yeah, I feel like it's the total opposite now. But also, that, that's something we've seen from culture as a whole. Is just the there there are no hard and fast lines anymore. It's the same reason we talk about just the kind of bands that are coming out today that are just mixing so many genres because they have access to so many genres. Yeah, and, everybody everybody always liked everything. Everybody always yeah. liked music and I sports so. or whatever. I think there was a lot of a, a different way you defined your personality a little bit. And um, maybe everything being online now, everything's a little more porous and a little bit less rigid. So it's easier to to be multiple things at once. Um, or I hope that's the case anyway. And I also I, think people don't care about that kind of like we don't hang yeah. out in the same sort of groups we used to. Mm, yeah. So like no one hangs out at all anymore. About, yeah. <laughs> Kids don't go outside. Uh, yeah, it is kind of like a monoculture thing that's happening though, which is a little scary sometimes. Yeah, I think it rips. (laughs) What do you think? Rips until proven otherwise. Yeah, that's a good good way to go. What do you think? What? I said really, or what do you think? I know. I I think it's. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm too old to have an opinion on that stuff. I'm already set in my ways. No, this old dog's got no new tricks. That's for sure. Uh, Keegan, as someone who does consume as much music as you do, uh, where do you find new music? 
I'm online a lot. You know, I have like many people, I have like a, a work from home laptop job. I spend a lot of day in, in the Zoom meetings and emails and stuff. And and so I'm on my computer a lot. And so I spend a lot of time in between tasks, scrolling Twitter or reading about music. Uh, I think places like Stereogum and Rosie Overdrive and uh, people like places like that are doing great work. And then I follow a lot of music writers and a lot of friends who are really into music. Um, the kids from the Endless Scroll podcast are always talking about things that they're uh, engaging with. And um, and then I try and uh, go out of my way to find stuff that I wouldn't otherwise. I used to write a column about uh, alternative music in Asia. And I spent a lot of time on Bandcamp just like picking countries or places and scrolling and clicking things that have cool album art and just trying to find something that that w isn't getting put in my feed um and then i when i do i've been follow i follow bands and labels and writers from those countries and try and just put new new stuff in my timeline um uh, unite asia is a is a blog that ha that has been a one-man army for years he's been running the most and like frequently regularly updated website of all new music releases in alternative and heavy and uh indie music in asia and it just is a great resource of of shit people don't talk about here what uh do you have a, a i guess a singular band that maybe you've discovered this year that has blown you away like a revelatory discovery yeah there's I'll go through like little revelations all the time. Like I won't like I'll know the band Supergrass. I'll have heard the band Supergrass, but then this year I sat down with that first album for the first time and like really listened to it through and had it on repeat and spent time with it and loved it. And just like um it was something I knew existed. I knew basically what it was, but I got to actually experience it and really um was surprised by how much I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm also getting a lot I'm going back a lot of the Bands from Japan stuff I know now are my friends or very, very current music and bands that are active right now. And I have very little knowledge of like the popular Japanese rock music through the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. Um, so I'm trying to go back and, and learn about those bands. I'm listening to a lot of Number Girl and Bloodthirsty Butchers and these kind of big Japanese rock bands that were super important to alternative music in Japan. Um, and then uh, trying See, to think was, of one thing this year already. That was that was a, a bit of a leading question because I was hoping you were going to mention uh, your hostage com discovery. That is true. I did <laughs> hostage com, another band that I knew as a t shirt, and then I actually listened to this year. <laughs> they were a big t shirt band, and I was floored by how much was happening, how many ideas there were in it, how forward thinking it was how willing to be silly it was but it wasn't stupid it wasn't like like a dumb joke like a pop punk thing it was just smart and funny and like really inventive and took a pretty down the line emo pop punk sound that was happening at the time and did really cool things with it that was wildly influential and i mean if you listen to those records sound there's some of those songs sound like turnstile like a decade before turnstile they just had a real sense of how you could make pop music out of the kind of these are other alternative genres and i yeah really really loved that record the uh you know the one the big one the self-titled self-titled yeah 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 had which, a great time with it 
for yeah, for me, we 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 discussed the self-titled on our Patreon, mainly based around the, when you kicked up that discourse online about it, which got a lot of cool people out of the work, woodwork to kind of like wax poetic on it, which was nice to see because I feel like they were such a huge part of the New England like emo scene that they do kind of fall by the wayside. Like I think their Spotify numbers are like horrifically low, and they were they were like a true band's band in like an interesting way and they also yeah. like carried a scene they were the band that was putting on a lot of the shows or just playing a lot of the shows and they were just kind of a mainstay because uh, i know they, they were in a band was it at all costs i think was the band previous and uh again same deal like just playing all the local shows that like carried through that connecticut scene uh, so yeah, it was just like a very important thing, and it's nice when people get recognized for that stuff later down the line. Recognized, recognized for that later down the line, exactly. But yeah, that that that's I mean that's got to be a cool thing to to discover because that record it doesn't sound like much else at that time. It's it's pretty crazy. No, it's really fun to find something that you've you've known, you've seen it a million times, you know the cover, you saw it in the record store, and, and experiencing it for yourself for the first time is. Is really just like a, I don't know. It's a great thing to be surprised by something you thought you knew. Yeah, and I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said it. They kind of do a lot of interesting things each record, and it's not a joke. Like you said, like it's a very sincere exploration of these themes and these different sounds. And uh, I think that I mean it, you can you can hear that in the music that it's like no, we, this is like we really love the Clash. <laughs> You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and that that rips but speaking of another kind of a uh, hole you've been going down should we start talking about this member you're the plan baby you're the plan is that the is that mm-hmm. what we're calling it you're the plan we uh me and my my dear buddy madison from ogbert the nerd have been trying to make year of the plan happen for many years and uh just really we love that band. It's an incredible band. It's a timeless band. It's an inventive and exciting and experimental band. And it feels like they disappeared a little bit um, for younger kids, especially. And people know about them. I don't think they're ever going to fully disappear. But we have really had a great time uh, just uh, finding some excuse to talk about them. Well, you're in the right place for that. So, <laughs> so what made you choose uh, this one over what people i guess would think would be the obvious choice uh of emergency and i what made you choose change change has been my record for a long time um i think that emergency and i is like the star for a reason and i think if you're really gonna pull back to like influence and impact and like how well they executed on the ideas and the swings they were taking. I think there's, you can't really argue against Emergency and I. I think it's a landmark record. Um, but Change to me is where uh, Emergency and I is their best record because it perfectly balances the two things that the Dismemberment Plan is really the best at, which is um, inventive, unpredictable songwriting and being really annoying. Like those are the two things that they're the best at. And when they and they yeah. hit the perfect balance on emergency and I, where every idea really hits you in the face. It's so unexpected and so often abrasive at first. Um mm-hmm. 
but it's it's really magnetic. His force of personality and his just execution on those ideas is really just a, a joy to experience. Um, change is the one where it sort of is more subdued is the kind of general opinion of it. It it kind of strips out a lot of the annoying parts, the the hyperactive uh, spastic bits that they were really characterized by for those first three albums. But what I think is really special about it is the the songwriting. I think as a lyricist, when he slowed down a little bit and was uh, trying to do what he does, which is very kind of vivid and fanciful depictions of everyday life and 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 pulling out what's weird about being alive um, by looking at things very, very uniquely. Uh, it really worked on change when he tried to grapple with things that were heavier and it shouldn't have really like his thing is really just kind of being the tasmanian devil and being all over the place and and being faster than you and louder than you and and when he slowed down it should have been boring i think and it wasn't he just really found a way to talk about something a little darker in a way that maintained a lot of the magic that the band always had I think this record, um, uh, this was not my dismemberment plan record. Uh, I was always emergency and I, this one was a little too sparkly for me, probably until the past five years or so. Um, I like how this record more than the other ones sort of uses the instrumentation to put his, uh, not voice in a cage. What's like the nicer way to say, like contain some of those ideas uh, better than previously. I think it kind of emphasizes his voice a little bit. Like it, it kind of yeah, pushes but like it it's more imbalanced. There's more, there's more interplay between the music and oh, big time the vocals instead of like combative. Some of the, some of the, like the, the way the vocal melodies play off of the music in this is, some of the best I've heard in a long time. Like, so I, bearing the lead a little bit, this might be one of my favorite records that we've talked about on the podcast in a while that I, that I hadn't heard before. Oh, really? Oh, so I'd I always can't known, even say, Dan, why do you hate this record? I, I, that's the complete opposite. Uh, I love this record. I had always known of Dismemberment Plan. I think I've listened to, you know, Emergency and I, and it's just like, eh, it's fine, I guess. Uh, and then listening to this, it all kind of clicked, and I'm like, okay, this fucking rips. Um, and I think I think one of the ones that really kind of solidified it for me is um, "Face of the Earth." Though I love the way his vocals play off the the guitar and especially the bass. This is such a good fucking bass mm-hmm, record. Absolutely. Oh my god, the bass is it seems so simple, but it carries these songs in a way that like is is unreal it's uh and the drums too there's parts on this record that the drums are just fucking absurd yeah i think that there's um sorry i think that maybe slowing down or letting the songs breathe a little bit didn't really um clean up the instrumentation it didn't like simplify it there's still a lot like Mm -hmm. everybody's playing their ass off like everything finds its pocket um, like especially the bass, like you just hear it in a different way. This album because it it fills wherever there's a gap, wherever the melody isn't, the bass appears mm-hmm. and exactly. it carries a ton of ideas um, without being obtrusive. And 
and it's also like you know you know hall of fame tier drumming on a lot of this album just wherever it's needed it really comes through what's so crazy is about yeah a band full of like super talented musicians playing rock having the guitar be like the third most interesting instrument Mm -hmm. out of the group like that's (laughs) that's a feat of itself And, and again like the bar is high across the board for all of them but everyone else is just playing in such a way that like you said it, it kind of everyone has their moments in a way that's really fun and uh like i think on uh what's the the other side the second to last track like the drumming on it almost sounds like amen break level mm-hmm. drumming it's such a fun dr- like i want that to become the new drum sample that everyone uses in like uk jungle music you know but uh one thing I noticed right off the bat, though, that's that's a little fun, is uh, Sentimental Man, the first track, opens the same way um, Once in a Lifetime does by the Talking really? Heads. <laughs> Did I, let, me, let me play a little of that. Hold on. Let me, let me find. Uh, so this is Sentimental Man starting out. So you can kind of hear that like swirling synth in the back. And now listen to listen to this. Yeah, it's the there first it thing is. I thought of when I heard it. Interesting. <laughs> so I'm really curious if damn. that's a bit of a, a hat tip or not. But uh, it's the fir- it's literally the first thing that came to mind. It's like, oh, this sounds so so specifically familiar. Yeah, I think that's, so that's one fun. of the strengths of the album is the guitar is a lot more tone setting and mood. And is, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the playing is really great on the album. It's maybe a little more understated, but I think it's really exceptional what he's doing on guitar in this record. And um, we can probably talk a lot about that, just like the way his playing really fits these songs um, and, and turns things that like really takes a simple change and makes it feel explosive. And like the whole song is, is on fire. Um, but yeah, this, this album, it feels like the drum and bass are, driving more of it and the guitars are uh, creating a world around it and i think that sentimental man is such a great opener because it's so intentionally deflating like it's a fizzle the whole time usually these songs like uh you are invited like an opener from them is going to blow up at the end it's going to have this big this climax of some kind that really brings home what they've been postponing and this song doesn't. It kind of skitters, it, it hisses, it sort of fades, and it defeats your expectations of what it's supposed to be. And I think that that sets up the rest of the record for you. Like, right. he's like, hey. Because that's what it does on Face of the Earth. Yeah, Face of the Earth is exactly what you expect. Like, that it, that it it, it's subdued and then explodes it's a, it's um, a- into like the most beautiful pop like tw- twangy pop oh that i can hear pop. that guitar that it's just so repeated good. guitar in my head the um here's i i think early on um i remember seeing this band in what 2001 maybe they did a tour with uh death camp mm-hmm. for cutie called the death oh, i was gonna ask did you do tour. the death and dismemberment tour yeah, it's like yeah, the yeah, best tour name of all time it's yeah so it was good. great um but I remember seeing it for the first time and being like, I just, I don't like, don't understand what like the rhythm section is pulling from. Like I don't I don't have the music vocabulary to understand, you know, what they're doing. And I think like still to this 
point, I probably don't. But but who who do you think they're pulling from? Who do you think that like, you know? That's a great question. I actually haven't. I mean, so that what's happening in D.C. at the time is really remarkable, mm-hmm. like that the 90s into the early 2000s is where a lot of that like post hardcore stuff was happening. And the other band I think of in terms of like jittery, brainy, alternative rock is Q and Not You. I was going to say, please say Q and Not You. I think um, it, it's a it's a band yeah. who's I who you whose influence is quieter than it should be for a band to influence such a giant percentage of guitar music that came after them. They right. And what you, I mean, what year was this? This was 2001. What year did that Farragut record come out? It's gotta be very close to that. 99, 2001. Yeah. With the one with cut self not on it. Yeah, and there's so there's a jawbox thing happening yeah, too. Like I think the the, the impact right. of Jay Robbins is really what it comes back to. I didn't um, think about that because Jay Robbins is. I actually made a note. How many fucking records have we talked about on this podcast that Jay Robbins produced? It's got to be most of Jay them. Robbins is yeah. And he probably lives right down the street everywhere. Oh, you got to hit him up. And um, jawbox also. Maybe not as as widely referenced anymore, but they were a band whose riffs became a template for everyone immediately. It was a very distinctive kind of aggressive riffing that came from an aggra- heavy music place, but was employed in a very different way in a very kind of um, kind of similarly to what happened with Drive Like Jehu or whatever. There was a you know a hardcore style of playing music that was turned into something different and more angular, and. Um, but then by the end of Jawbox had developed this like real polish and these songs were really, despite being jagged and sort of really muscular and mean, they were also really glossy and really accessible. So a lot of bands are taking this like really, and Q and not you, like these jagged guitars, these unpredictable rhythms, this very, uh, disorienting structure to their songs and finding a way to make it, um, land to make it kind of a more to have a pop finish to it and i'm not sure what what like the classic influences for their instrumentation are i'm sure there's like you know all kinds of classic rock there's definitely classic funk there's definitely all kinds of like throwback references to in what they're doing but i think that go go yeah absolutely um, but I think at the time, you really have to look at Jay Robbins and and what bands like Q and Not You were doing, and everybody was sort of like, um, it, the songs move a lot. The songs are going a lot of directions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's just so much like f- fun stuff mm-hmm. on this record. Like that's the best way I can describe this record is it's a fucking fun record. It doesn't take mm-hmm. itself too seriously. Um, the lyrics can kind of be as darker as light as you want them to be and they kind of do vary between the two um but i I just love like it's just it's a record that gets stuck in your head the riffs are like complicated but still catchy which is like a tough thing to pull off and like i said i usually don't care about bass but just those like those bass lines you you nailed it with that like right where everything else kind of drops out the bass picks it back up um it's just i'm trying to think of what my stuff's all scattered here in my notes but it's it's just i don't know it had this effect on me that uh number one i think me and andrew both share this but we love a a film photo of a blue sky on a record cover Mm. 
And uh, this one now is it actually mm-hmm. reminds me of a photo I took in Nashville that I had to look up and make sure it wasn't the same <laughs> place. But uh, absolutely, I think the 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 cover is perfect. I didn't realize there was a there was a, a maritime connection. I didn't realize that I they was, went on to. I, you know, it's wild. I was just looking at the at the Desoto Records uh, discography, mm-hmm. and like, it makes total sense. Um, those great Burning Airlines mm-hmm. records came out. They put those out around this time. Um, Dan, do you like uh, the uh, um, Burning Airlines? Never listened. Also, Jay Robinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, and I, like way more accessible. Yeah, and Jay there's, there, it's also so at the same time. Jay Robbins is producing um, the very emergency by the Promise Ring, which is their pop right. record. Mm. And then the same year that um, the Burning Airlines releases their first album, which is kind of a glossy, very hooky, poppy version. Still like the sinewy guitars that are really that are heavy riffing, but. Um, very catchy and, and hooky and the same year um hey mercedes forms which is the braid offshoot oh, wow, yeah. and so they're all doing this kind yeah, of right. it's one year where everything in emo suddenly gets very poppy and, and pushes for like how catchy can we make this and it doesn't last because the reception was poor people didn't like like a lot of these genres come out of hardcore come out of heavier music come out of un, like independent music and the push for pop wasn't well received. And so you see every one of those bands die off or go a different direction in the next couple of years. And by 2004, you don't really have this sound anymore. But it was a really 2001 um, when this album comes out is a year when all of these bands are turning their kind of really uh, almost mathy sounds and, and complicated sounds into something very streamlined. That's interesting. There's a lot of um I think there's a lot of comparisons musically to the promise ring um with the dismemberment plan and like not so much um in the aesthetic or anything, but I find both of those bands to be completely um drum and bass in the front. Like everything else in the back, um, and that's something that I don't think I think most bands are guitar driven in this era. Um so it's nice, it's refreshing, and I think it's the reason these bands are looked at so favorably so so long after. I, I think what's Jesus really interesting Christ. about change, too, is that everybody around them... I just can't wrap it up. That's my problem. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, um, what I love about change is that everybody else is streamlining or trying to make their songs sleeker and kind of more direct. And change does strip away some of the chaos, but it doesn't really... St- streamline anything all the the first three songs on the album which is typically you know you have your singles and slot two and three on the album it's like the classic way to mm-hmm. sequence an album the first three songs here are all over four minutes most of them are almost five minutes um only one song on the album is under three minutes at all like everything spreads out and takes its time and even if it's not uh on the face is chaotic it still is so restless it's still constantly moving like a song like um pay for the piano has all of these little rhythmic breaks that it's on surface a more straightforward song than they usually do but there's all these cuts and weird tempo time signature things where you're never fully your feet aren't on the ground yeah and and that's something i didn't even really look at the how long these songs are but yeah you're right it's they're all in the four minute mark for the most part and and beyond 
And this record, it I think that's what a testament to make it, you know, just, just being a fucking great record is you don't think about that at all. Like the record kind of flies by and mm. you you're kind of happy that the songs they're like, oh, there's still a minute left of this. Yeah, like, yeah. I can like spend you, more time in yeah. this world. When, I, like, I definitely agree. There's a few movies that are like similar like that. Like a long, like, uh, did either of you guys see uh, Under the Silver Lake? Mm-mm. No, I'm not a nerd. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's, a, it's an A24 movie with like Andrew Garfield, but it's like a kind of weird mystery movie. And it's like one of the few times like you're watching a movie and you pause and you're like oh hell yeah there's still an hour to go <laughs> mm. and that's kind of with this record it's like oh like i'm I'm like you said you want to live in it a little longer and it's it's that's a great feeling to have yeah and i'm not that guy normally i'm really like a wrap it up guy i think that every album should be 10 minutes and under or t- like 10 <laughs> songs under 30 minutes i want I want yeah. you to get to the hook. You're not like a world building. Uh, I mean, I, I like you know, I like narrative. I like everything guy. that, like, just like that needs to be that way. You know, like Sufjan Stevens songs or Joanna Newsom songs or or stuff that by right. its structure has to. Mountain goats. Do you care about the mountain? I'm goats? a big mountain goats fan. They're that's a complicated one because they've had so many eras too. Yeah, but um i'm i'm really like in favor like our new record is going to be under 30 minutes or i'll kill myself it just has to be like to the point and just giving <laughs> you what count like what matters like what what is really mm-hmm. why are you here and what are we trying to give you and can we get to that can we focus on the parts that really are are like essential and that's what i well, love I think- in music which is why it's so strange that i love this album so much it it, it needs every minute yeah it's what well, i think i'm I think I'm the other way now. I think I like to like live in something that feels, I don't know, endless. I can't, but it's got to be that, good enough to want to feel that way. <laughs> I talk about that Lana Del Rey record from That's last true. year. That I'm is telling a... you, I I I love that record. I love um, that. Um, I'm easy to find by the National. You know what I mean? That feels like a world building record. That like, I when I listen to, it, I don't even know where I am in it. Um, Dan, well, with this, like uh, that? Travis actually talks a lot about this record, and he he describes it as his as his night album. And he said that there there's certain albums he he believes are day records and and night records, and this is their night record. Oh, he doesn't really expand on it too much, but that's his that's how he thinks of this record. Is this is his nighttime? I record. think that's that's right. It's a record that is. That there's like loss at the center of, but it's also a record that's like very um, struggling with indifference. Like real, like it, none of this might matter, and that actually is a terrible feeling. Um, well, I think he even broke it down as just like uh, like the tones they used on this record were were night specific i like he i don't know he didn't even I don't, I don't think he even mentions the lyrics it's just like how the album was written tonally and like sound design yeah, wise it, which is which is interesting yeah i think that's where that people get the kind of subdued vibes that i think are really just like mm-hmm. murky you know yeah well what my favorite find on this was so face of the earth like i said one of the top songs for me on this record um it kind of reminded me of the finale of the curse if either of you have watched the curse i yet. haven't yet so you'll have to uh, just 
wink at the audience here. Well, this will this will all make a lot of sense then if you read the lyrics and then watch the the last episode of the curse. But um, what I found out that's so crazy about it is that song was written after Travis read an interview about Michael Jordan's girlfriend dying. Hmm. And apparently Michael Jordan, I guess, when he was in high school or college, apparently he was dating this girl for like two or three months and went to, they like rented a beach house with like a bunch of friends. And she apparently like went swimming at night and got like sucked out into a rip current and died. Oh God, that's awful. And this song apparently is about, you know, only knowing someone for a short amount of time and then having them die. And kind of having to go through all the motions, but also while not knowing someone long enough to be particularly sad about it. And I'm like, that's in- that's such a wild thing to write a song about. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. I th- I just thought that was a crazy thing. And then you you read the lyrics, and you're like, oh yeah, it's this it's this kind of weird, I don't know, like setting that they make about just how you should feel about something when you haven't established the time enough to feel it. Yeah. I think that like that song especially is like, how are you supposed to feel? Um, and a lot of it is how am I supposed to feel? A lot of the album is like, what am I supposed to feel about this? Um, I think that on come home, which is another song that should feel like a slog and it's not when that ending happens, Mm -hmm. I always am like waiting for it. I'm always looking for that moment and it's so satisfying every time. Uh, but he does this verse that he does a lot of times and a lot of ways across this catalog where he's, it's kind of a throwaway verse where he's, it's mundane and nothing happens. And that's the kind of joke of it. But he said, called my dad mm-hmm. to check in and maybe find some common sense, more or less. He says, common sense is such a scam. And I'm like, dad, what do you mean? He says, you're either wrong or right. And life will go on either way, whatever you choose. And it's kind of like, I called my dad for advice. And he said that just do whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. There, there is some great lines on this record. I mean, in in um, in Fates of the Earth, he, he says uh, she's flying at an impossible speed. I think it is, and I think like the words "impossible speed" for me is like my cellar door. <laughs> I think it's just such a good line. Um, but also, uh, "Secret Curse," where he starts every verse off with the word mm-hmm. "secret curse." I think it's such a good like lyric structure is really fun and then he, he follows it up with the please 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 i'm so sorry for the chorus is is also incredible and what was the last one uh oh i'm a time bomb and i only live in that one moment in which you die yeah it's is that's incredible. one of those that is just like um on its face like it's the kind of thing you're like wow how did nobody write this yet and it's it yeah. maybe a little melodramatic but it's like that's just you know an all-timer you you, you got it you got a couple that really landed um there that so this, the reason this album is is the one for me is because i think that all of the songs a lot of the songs have this really special quality of being surreal and kind of magical um what is what i think is so great about the band but i think on this record specifically there's like two songs that are just like some of the best lyrics ever written just he knew what it was to write a song which is to give you one four minute slice of something and to just show you the part that matters and then to somehow explain to you through that story why there's this much larger feeling 
of loss that you can't describe. And he's like writing around mm-hmm. that hole and that and that difficulty. I mean, the first is Face of the Earth, where mm-hmm. it I think it was Coke Machine Glow back in the day. Someone who wrote for that website um had a article where they said I once tried to publish a review here of the album change where I just posted, I cut and pasted the lyrics from Face of the Earth as the review and just tried to publish it that way. Just like let it speak for itself. Because I think it's a remarkable wow. song in that way. But I think the other one is following through. Mm. Where he's a little bit less fanciful, a little bit less manic and something about him trying to insist that this is his life and it's going to be good uh, is both like triumphant and pathetic and desperate and lonely and like somehow still the thing he needs to tell himself to keep going. And um, I think following through is a song that I'll be trying to write my entire life. Yeah. I have a fun uh, Travis uh, quip about following through. Uh he said, in England, following through means when you think you have to fart, but instead you shit. He's, and that was his, he's that way. his description of that song. That's how he talks about everything. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's a funny guy. I mean, it's, there's, something so, there's something so bristly also about the way he is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great that, you know, when an artist can be, you know, funny about their work and not take it too, too seriously. Uh, oh, another lyric I have here, too, is an, I'm an Old Testament type of guy. I like my coffee black and my parole denied, which is very <laughs> funny. I'd say, what uh, what kind of bright spots do you have on this, Andrew? What are you, what are you thinking? I mean, like, I think it's sort of hard to pick one. Um, I like the flow of uh, Sentimental Man into face of the earth in the superpowers i think it's mm-hmm. a great like first wave of songs um and i think it does that over and over again I, I i don't have the lp and i meant to look at what um what they're is going for on secret, is secret curse uh uh the first song on the side b i think automatic is the first song on side b oh uh, okay i think he mentions that which I get. I think that's a good song for side B. Um, no, secret, no, secret curse is the split. On the is f- it? first okay. Yeah, see, it felt like it was. Um, so I was a little shocked, but I'm glad. I'm glad they nailed mm-hmm. that. They got that feeling right. Wait, so it, the the first song on side B is secret yep. curse. Oh, yeah, interesting. Side so okay. A ends on come home, and it picks up a secret curse. And I think that actually the other reason this album works for me so well is like, I think that this is a perfectly sequenced album. There's stuff in this album that isn't good, really. I think that obviously Come Home is really long and then Automatic is somehow even feels even longer, even though it's not. I think that the other side and Ellen and Ben are the slice of life, you know, describing mundane existence and telling a story that Mm -hmm. goes nowhere that he does a lot. But neither of them are particularly good versions of that. Both of them feel a little bit like there's no punch to them. There's not really a, there really isn't a point to those ones. And it feels like it doesn't carry anything like his other songs do. But somehow those two being the end, the way the record flows into those two songs, those two songs became these like 
triumphant live fan favorites. Um, they're so good. I I love that they're the last two tracks on the record because it, it does it, feel it, like it feels like it, getting dessert. Yeah, the only one yeah, right it, there. It feels like it feels like the pile up at the end of the record, sort of. Um, Ellen and Ben, it's such a fun story too. It's just like I like that it tells a story that's very like specific, and it's just like, oh yeah, these two people met each other at a party. She went home and didn't think about him again. I went over to her house to like pick up my copy of Nebraska, and they like couldn't stop making out for me to like get a word in. And then they, yeah, and then no one saw them, and then they just broke up and couldn't even be friends. It's such a, it's just such a good story. And they said it's like based on a couple that like ran a venue in Baltimore, I think. Yeah, I think I've heard a, I've Maryland heard several somewhere. versions of the story. One version of the story is that um, the people. Um, referenced in the song didn't know travis that well and we're very a little bit weirded out by being featured on the album um which might just be an apocryphal story but the i think that the like yeah ellen and ben is really light it's really breezy and elsewhere on the record i think you breeze past it but at the end it's like oh this is the story of the whole album like they thought they they made each other feel like they could die and now they don't speak at all which is weird like suddenly your whole life is this person everything Mm -hmm. you're consumed with this this is your whole life and then the next day yeah it isn't and you have to just make meaning now that your life is a huge vacuum yeah have you ever thought about your ex's families how they're doing time of course yeah when I broke up with the girl I dated in college, I like wrote her parents a letter thanking them for all they did for me. It's very nice. It is. What about you, it's Andrew? weird. I um I've never been somebody who uh who uh stays friends with uh exes and probably says something more about me than anybody else, but uh yeah, I was thinking the other day. I was in like a ten year relationship. Wonder how that family's doing. And that's and that's kind <laughs> of the re- whole album. Not gonna reach out. Is but... like what like this was your whole life, and now that it's gone, yeah, whole... what are you supposed to like? What yeah, are you yeah. supposed to do with that? And how are you supposed to feel like, about it? L- literally one day it turned off. Yeah, and never came back. You know what I mean? It's it's a really weird thing uh, for somebody to put into a song so effectively. Yeah, and then it it circles back to the first song, A Sentimental Man, where at the end he says, even as I flake on every deal I ever made with myself before the ink could dry. Um, and it's, there's like a lot of kind of self-deprecating stuff throughout the album, but mm-hmm. there in the beginning, he's like, what, what follows is a sequence of me flaking me vanishing on something before seeing it through and so that's why when following through hits almost near the end it's like almost desperate it's like him really insisting that he is following through he's got to follow through he's going to follow through and you both believe him and you can't believe him and that's what makes it such a staggering song to me um there's also the, the second chorus is like entirely falsetto and apparently it was an accident he like recorded that part first as kind of a joke as a harmony and then yeah somebody liked it and so they just left it it's just like it, it wasn't intended which, to be that way which song uh, like following through 
It's not a promise or okay, a threat yeah, or an ultimatum, though I can do that too. He also says his vocals on Sentimental Man are kind of fucked up and annoying, is how he describes them. So, uh, it's a lot of fun. So, like, yeah, what for for both of you guys? What are what are the hits? Are there any skips? I think. Who wants to go first? Well, let me go second because I am always talking. Yeah, Andrew, let's hear from you. I don't know. I think. I think. I, didn't I just answer this? Um. I would say hits face of the earth is probably uh my jam on this record um you know secret curse pay for the piano is a great song um I admittedly I don't I don't usually finish the record really? um yeah I, not every time hmm. um but I don't know probably says more about me Dan Keegan what do we what do we think So I think that the album's real strength, the real genius of it, is the sequencing. I think that if you move Come Home or Automatic, they become insufferable. They're just too long and too dreary. Um, and But they, they fit here. They're sandwiched between Pay for the Piano, Secret Curse, and Following Through. And every time there's about, the album's about to die, something angry or something exciting or something loud happens. And when time bomb happens near the end, it doesn't feel like the dramatic conclusion of the album. It feels kind of exhausted. Um, whereas if you put it up front, it feels angry and it's not, it's, it's desperately exhausted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, like I said, the other side and Ellen and Ben, I think if they were singles, you'd just feel like there's not enough here, but together at the end, they really send the album off. And it's, it's almost like, yeah, that, that, everything might mean nothing and i don't know what to do with any of these feelings but you might just keep going on you might get to you know you might get to the other side so i think that the to me face of the earth and following through are two of the best songs they ever wrote i don't think that i think it's i think that's to the top three i i think that's this a a a massive achievement um i think that automatic is what it is it feels like a dreary mood piece to me and that's the one i would skip if i had to but like i said i almost always make it through it between secret curse and following through yeah no i think i i follow those same sentiments uh face of the earth was the one that like really piqued my interest in this record when i like put this record on for the first time uh and then the other side and and ellen and ben i think are like i said really fun little treats at the end of the record um I love I love the drumming on the other side. It kind of reminds me of Machines Kept You Alive off that new Fireworks record, mm-hmm. which mm. is just huge, huge, crazy drums that are, you know, you almost can't tell if they're human drums or, or sequence drums. Uh, I keep going back to that Fireworks record. It's so fucking good. It's it's crazy. Um, Did d- 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 either of you listen to Travis's solo stuff? I have a little bit, yeah. I, I keep meaning to go back to it more. Um, it's it's definitely good and i think that uh it was a product of the era like that was a real casualty of an early pitchfork era where uh i think that they took great delight in kind of mocking him for the things about him that are i mean look his whole thing is being annoying like he's he's an irritating difficult person that's a huge part of his music Mm -hmm. um and i think that it was an easy dunk when he started doing kind of weirder solo stuff. And I think that um, 
it's a shame that we didn't get more of it because it, it it ended his career pretty quickly. It did. I, you know, I had totally forgotten about the initial uh, response to those records or that. Rec- was it just one? I don't know. If there was a second Let me one. Look, um, I do remember that record being everywhere and like not in a great way critically. Mm-hmm. That does like they did do him dirty. Did uh, just connecting. That. Did you guys? Uh, I I just saw it was here, but did you guys listen to the record they put out in 2013? Yes. What's th- what's that like compared to the rest of the discography? I think that that's the inferior record. Um, I like it more than their first album, okay. but I think that it, I mean, it doesn't quite approach the heights of either of the two that came before it. Um, I think it was largely an excuse for them to come back and tour again now that the people had kind of remembered them, mm-hmm. which I think I'm very happy for because I got to see them uh i think twice and that was a really wonderful experience and i mean a joy to see them and i i kind of support bands doing that if you have a sort of middling record and you still it it lets you tour and be around your fans who didn't get to see the first time i think that's fine um but i do think it's underrated i think that there's great songs on it i think it's funny i think that there's a lot to like about it and it might have some misses on it but it's worth going back to if you do like the band i think it's a, it's worth a listen yeah i, I think, think they, they were they in a great a great era of like reunion records mm. i mean they, they they were almost a little early to that that now that's what everyone's yeah. doing now yeah i think they'd be more successful if they waited but i think at the same time i, I it was would have been 10 years really since they'd been a band and i think it was a mm-hmm. good time for them to try one more round mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good, uh, I mean, a decade's a good enough time to take off. Oh, yeah. Probably, like, the last time I was in a serious, serious band. Well, isn't that what, like, Jeff Mangum did, too? Like, his whole thing was, I mean, like, to vanish off the face of the earth for ten years and then come back. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, this record, like I said, it was, it was a delight. Um, I don't know if this holds up, but, uh, for some reason I woke up the other morning singing... The lyrics to Mutt by Blink-182 in the melody of Ellen and Ben. And I don't remember the melody of to Ellen and Ben off the top of my head right now. So That's a fun game for the listeners at home. Go, go look up those lyrics and see if I yeah. was, if I was right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, Keegan, this has been a fucking blast. It's, it's great to have you Thank you so you much on. for having me. I, I love talking about this record. Hell yeah. Where, where can people find you? Uh, what do you got coming up? Hit the plugs. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at at Franzia Mom. I uh, the band is Camp Trash Camp underscore Trash on Twitter, and um, we are going to the studio in March to record LP two with yeah. my friend Mo Troper. So we're really excited about that and working on getting those songs finished up and hopefully have something in terms of music out before end of the year. Hell yeah. Uh, you can follow me at Dambassini on Twitter and Instagram, dambassini.com. My new book, When I Kill God, I Will Find the Spigot from Which He Meters Out Grace and Smash It Permanently Open, is available now. Limited copies remaining, as well as I just got some copies back of my previous non-fashion-related book, I Still Feel It. Uh, limited quantities. Pick it up while you can. Uh, I don't know if I will reprint them anytime soon, so check it out. Which Andrew, one? what do you got to plug? Either. You don't think it'll reprint either? Maybe one day, but no, no immediate plans. Hmm. 
Um, I'd like to plug our Patreon, please. Uh, you can join the Patreon. I think you get what seven days free. Seven day free trial, um, baby. It's uh, five dollars thereafter. Um, you sort of get a lot for that. I mean, it's a lot of back catalog. So, we've yeah. also done a lot of episodes. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> we, yes, I did. We... I do. Um, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, we talk about your favorite record for sure. So you got to get in there. Um, my favorite all. record? No, I, oh, the, the, list, the royal favorite record. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I think it's a lot of value for five dollars, especially now that we have. There's like thirty bonus episodes in there so yeah check it out you can probably rip through them in a free trial so just i'd, I'd like that. to see a try but then five dollars for for your effort mm. you know we're, we're giving you content good content the best content i don't know <laughs> i don't know sometimes andrew's having an existential crisis it's okay <laughs> but hey great. we talk about that on the pod a lot on the on the patreon we get real personal uh keegan it's been great Thank you both uh, for having me. I've had a wonderful time. Hell yeah. Enjoy Texas. Get yourself some some barbecue. How Will far do. are you from Amarillo? I have no idea. I'm in the middle of Texas. Bar. I have no idea where anything is. Alright, well drive to I've Amarillo heard... and get that giant seventy two ounce steak from that like yeah, one eat the roadhouse. Seat, bro. <laughs> Got eat to. the uh yeah, the, the Simpsons episode. It's perfect. Alright, everybody else. Bye bye.